Hello, and welcome to a special edition of CFRC's Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. In our special program today, we're bringing you conversations with this year's Queen's University Distinguished Service Award winners. Queen's faculty, staff, students, retirees, elected, appointed, ex officio, or honorary members of Queen's University Council, the Queen's Alumni Association, and the Board of Trustees are invited each year to nominate candidates for a Queen's Distinguished Service Award. Inaugurated by the University Council in 1974, this award recognizes individuals who have made the university a better place through their extraordinary contributions. This year's Distinguished Service Award winners are Leslie Dalsin, Leslie Flynn, Dan Langham, Jim Leach, Donald Raymond, and Kimberly Woodhouse. We had the opportunity to catch up with five of the six winners and learn more about their service contributions and what motivates them to make Queen's a better place. Our first conversation is with Chancellor Emeritus Jim Leach, former trustee and chair of University Council, enthusiastic presider over convocation ceremonies, a generous philanthropist, and who has profoundly impacted the lives of countless students and enriched the university community with his dedicated and tireless service. Welcome back to CFRC, Jim. It's a pleasure to have you back on our airwaves. Super. Fun to be back on the airwaves. (laughs) And congratulations on your Queen's University Distinguished Service Award. Uh, What an outstanding achievement. Um, I'd love to hear from you uh, a, a little bit more about some of the distinguished service you've engaged in over many years, including uh, including the work that you've done as the 14th Chancellor of Queen's University. Maybe you could remind our listeners about your chancellorship. Sure, why don't I start there and work backwards, so to speak. Okay. Uh, I finished my, uh, was supposed to be sixth, ended up being seven plus years as uh, Chancellor of the university, the 14th chancellor. I always remind people that, you know, the while I was the 14th chancellor, there were principals which were number 21 and 22, I think. And and, and therefore that means that the longevity of chancellors is better than the longevity of all, of all the principals that we've had at the, uh, at the university. In any event, um, it was a great time. It was a time uh, for me to, give back, as you say, uh, but it was time to connect with students, uh, time to connect with issues that are going on in campus, whether they're, you know, in the positive category, things like major fundraisings or uh, the, the rankings, the international rankings the university has, or whether it's stuff with a little more negative connotation, like how do we address the issues around sexual violence or, or things like that. Mm-hmm. So it allowed me to kind of, you know, get, get involved and to, in areas where I thought I could contribute or had maybe some relevant experience from someplace else, I could bring it to the table. And, and you brought these to tables, including the board of trustees for Queens university, as well as university council. Yeah. When you're on the, um, when you're the chancellor, uh, you are a member of every single conceivable committee and uh, convening within the university. And so, yes, you're a member of the Board of Trustees, non-voting, but you're there. Um, and you are uh, you chair uh, University Council. 
Okay, thank you so much. And uh, Jim, you've engaged in, in so much work over the years on behalf of the university in terms of various uh, fundraising and advancement initiatives, including, I understand, a rather large uh, grant or gift rather to the School of Business. Uh, what are your thoughts on what it takes to work with various parties to secure large gifts to the university and why is it important to do so? Well, why it's important is that uh, we know that all public institutions are struggling with government funding. You know, mm -hmm. taxpayer doesn't have a endless pocketbook. Um, politicians answer to the taxpayers, um, and so they have the unenviable job of distributing the money amongst so many different priorities, whether it's healthcare whether it's universities, uh, roads, et cetera. Uh, they, the politicians have to make those decisions. Um, and although one could say that, you know, in the post-secondary education area, we've done relatively well, it's never really enough. Um, there are so many opportunities within the education sphere uh, that, you know, whether the, it's research, um, whether it's the quality of education, the new ways of, of teaching, uh, et cetera, it's constantly changing, technology, whatever, there, the demands uh, to, to maintain a first-class university and research uh, organization far outstrip uh, what the taxpayer uh, can, can foot. Mm -hmm. So have to turn to other sources and the only two other sources are philanthropy or revenue generation on your own mm -hmm. and so those are two areas that really need uh, some focus and some 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 considerable thought given to and and uh, and so yeah and, and advancements very very important and I know everybody says you know it's there's kind of an ugly to you know asking people for money um but you know there are many of us out there um who have been fortunate who have benefited from our education at queens or benefited from the research that's been done at queens mm -hmm. um, and that are in a position to help out and help others uh who come after us enjoy the same uh, advantages that we enjoy. Thank you very much for sharing. I appreciate that. And now, Jim, I wonder too, if we can learn a little bit more about some of the other initiatives that you've also engaged in, including a bursary for Indigenous students and, and a fellowship in entrepreneurship for African students that your own donations helped to establish. Can we learn more about these initiatives? Yeah, one, one of the very fortunate things that has happened to me in my life is working with great people at great companies and organizations. So um, it one of the key uh, uh, scholarships that is in my name is at the school of uh, at the at the Smith School of Business. When I retired as chief executive officer of Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, I was um, you know, it was a great honor that my colleagues at work and in, in, in the company and 
and others within the business community um, came together to create a scholarship uh, at the MBA school. Um, and I talked that up personally with additional funds. Mm -hmm. So they, um, I mean, let's put it this way, sure beats the gold watch. Uh, I didn't need a gold watch. Uh, and it was a great honor. And this was all the, the, the I, I hasten to say, Ontario Teachers Pension Plan didn't put in money. It was the employees themselves personally, um, as well as uh, others in the business community. So it kind of started that way. And I, I was then fortunate when I stepped down as the chair of the MasterCard Foundation um, that they sort of did the same thing. They said, you know, in, um, in recognition of my uh, work as the chair of the MasterCard Foundation and the great success that foundation has had and the relationship that foundation on its own forged with Queens in other areas, particularly in the uh, School of Health Sciences, um, they created the Jim Leach MasterCard um, Innovation uh, Scholarship Fellowship, um, which is open to, which allows African students on the continent of Africa to participate in the incubator uh, and accelerator that we have at the Dundas Fande um, uh, School. So it's, you know, that, that was great. Then I guess on the third one was the bursary for Indigenous students. Uh, that came at the end of my first term. I wanted to do something at the end of my first term as chancellor. And um, uh, I really, it was an answer to a challenge that David Johnson, then Governor General of Canada, put out to all the chancellors saying that, you know, we as chancellors were in a position to contribute to the Truth and Reconciliation uh, calls to action. Um, uh, one of which is the encouragement of uh, greater participation in post-secondary education by Indigenous students. And um, in consultation uh, with uh, Kanashani and Jan Hill um, and others at the, um, the Four Directions, we came up with the greatest need was to have a bursary. Um, so uh, I my wife and I personally um, created that. And then the, the final uh, major gift was at the end of the um, of my term after seven years as chancellor um, was to contribute to the uh, renovation of the Donald Gordon Center. Um, and, um, and so again, a number of people in the Queens community contributed uh, in my honor and my wife and I then I made a substantial donation to top it up. Um, and so I hope within two to three years, we'll be on campus for the opening of, uh, um, of, of that uh, space, which will be, uh, which we contributed to. So those are the sort of things. But so it's been, it's been fun to do those things, like each one of them, whether it's the MBA scholarships, I get to meet the students that, that have earned those scholarships, they come from all over the world. Every year I go down and we have a, a dinner um, and I learn about these young people. I spend time with them after they graduated, some of them helping them to get jobs. 
uh, and stay connected in their in the career. I mean, that's that's fun for an old guy like me. That's great. <laughs> uh, and and same with the you know I I'm advised on the um, uh, indigenous bursary. You know what you know who the recipients have been and how they've used the money to to secure and stabilize their life uh, as a student. Um, on the innovation one, I, I get to attend the contests and, and see all the real cool businesses that these kids on the African continent are creating and watch them compete with the uh, with fellow fellowship um, uh, or participants in the program from North America. And, you know, they compete very well. It's And I think it's a big surprise to them that you know, they can compete. So it's a lot of fun. And now, Jim, overall, what is it about Queen's University that you love so much and that drives your continued service? It's, it's, it's interesting. I really got to know Queen's as a kid um, in Kingston, uh, growing up in mm -hmm. my teens. And I used to sneak over the wall of Richardson Stadium to watch the football games. Um, uh, and so that was that was kind of how I knew Queens, played hockey at the Jock Hardy Arena um, uh, when it existed as a, you know, as a kid. Um, then uh, my next sort of contact with it was when my father went to work there as registrar and uh, got to really understand the university. Then I, my undergrad, as you know, I went to Royal Military College, so I used to compete rugby in particular mm -hmm. uh, against uh, Queens at that time. Their team, <laughs> the Queens team is so much better now. Uh, but it was, um, you know, that was the early days of rugby in, in the OQUA. Um, and then um, uh, went back to do my master's degree. And it was really, so it, it, there's many times in my life that it's touched me. Or at, mm -hmm. you know, at a young, impressionable age. And then lastly, when I did my MBA, it was really that transformation, that, that transition from the military to business. And I've been fortunate enough to be successful in business. And I think, you know, I, that goes back to MBA because that's the only time I ever learned anything about this. <laughs> Thank you so much. And now, uh, before we close, Jim, I wonder if you have any advice for other members of the Queen's community out there who may be interested in also giving back? Uh, well, for sure, I'd address it to young people. Uh, you know, grads who maybe have been out somewhere between maybe five years and 10 years, they likely are on a path. They've likely, you know, their, their life has sort of settled down a little bit. Um, that's about the time I got involved. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know you're not gonna, you're not going to be asked to be chancellor right off the bat. Um, so you know get involved in in smaller things. I started off uh, doing things with the School of Business, as it was called then, um, the Malice Smith School. Uh, and you know I guess I quitted myself. I was a young kid on the advisory board, and and um, that went well, and I was recruited. The university council and then recruited the mayor to the board and so it goes on but it's it's a matter of starting somewhere 
And um, it doesn't matter if it's small, even going down and giving a lecture, if you're an expert in something. Um, and there's lots of satisfaction in, in doing that. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing so much about your time uh, with your service to Queen's University over many, many years and, and for sharing so much with us today. It's always a pleasure having you on the airwaves and I hope to have you back on the airwaves again soon. Thanks, Jim. Always fun being interviewed by you. Thank you. Coming up in our next segment, we're chatting with Dr. Kimberly Woodhouse, former and first female Dean of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences and Interim Vice Principal Research, leading the way as well as a professor, innovator, leader of transformational change in engineering education, an advocate for cultivating the link between teaching, research, and industry. Dr. Woodhouse has also earned a Distinguished Service Award this year for the instrumental role she has played in the vision and realization of world-class research facilities at Queen's University. Welcome back, Kimberly, to CFRC, and congratulations on receiving this award. Thank you very much. It's, it's a great honor, uh, and I feel quite privileged to have received this award. <laughs> now, I understand uh, you are the first female dean in the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science at Queen's University. I, I'd love to hear more about what attracted you first to this role amidst your own teaching and research portfolio as well. Well, I think that's a, a interesting question because I have a bit of a different background from most academics. So I spent 10 years in private sector manufacturing and decided um, at the uh, you know ripe old age of, I think it was 32, to go back uh, to school to do my PhD, initially starting in my master's and then and then transferring it, bypassing into a PhD. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, at that time, I had two kids and a very supportive spouse and um, fell in love with academia. But I also had left industry as a production manager. So I was essentially the equivalent of a plant manager of a facility mm -hmm. and uh, had about 200 people reporting to me. So it wasn't it administrative roles in the university were something that I, I sort of fell naturally into and enjoyed. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really what attracted me. It was, you know, the great thing about being an academic, one of the great things, there's many, is that you can do many different things. So I was able to do my research, uh, under undertake my teaching. Uh, which I love. And um, I also was able to do the administrative roles. That being said, at some point, it gets a little hard to do it all. Um, and I think I've just naturally gravitated towards the administrative side based on my original background of 10 years in, in industry. Okay. And now, can we hear more from you about the work that you've done to make the fields of engineering and applied sciences uh, more accessible for other uh, self-identifying females. Perhaps we can hear more about the uh, underrepresentation of uh, of females in the disciplines and move on to how you've worked to confront barriers to female identifying students that they face. So this is always a difficult question <clears throat> for me to answer because I think how I dealt with confronting barriers was by standing in front of them mm -hmm. and pushing them over. Um, and, and also through um, a significant amount of support from um, colleagues in the profession of engineering. So the former dean, Tom Harris, was actually a person who said to me, you should apply. 
to be dean based on my background. He's always been extremely supportive of women um, in engineering and was ahead of, of people in, in terms of supporting those type of initiatives. So I think for me, the knocking down the barriers was being there and being able to change the system by being in it and being in, in a, a position of authority. So I was able to start things like the Aboriginal Access to Engineering Program, which is now the Indigenous Futures in Engineering Program. And that was started in 2012. And I was able also to be present and to be a role model, which I think was my really my key role um, was a role model. So I would do the presentations to incoming students. Um, and I think it was important for the women in the audience to see a woman leading the faculty. So by virtue, partly of being there and being that role model, I have to confess at one time, I didn't think it was that important, but mm -hmm. I came to realize that it is. And uh, so, you know, once I sort of had that eureka moment, I, uh, I tried to put myself in as many possible positions to say, I'm here, I'm a woman, um, this is what I do. And it's a great job. It's a wonderful, wonderful um, opportunity for students. I think something else that was kind of interesting that, that a couple of my colleagues and I recognized early on in our careers is when we were talking to our PhD students, and in this case, I'm talking specifically about academia, we weren't always making academia sound like a lot of fun. You know, we'd go into the lab and complain. And then we realized <laughs> we needed to be encouraging uh, students, any student, but particularly the women to realize they could have a career, they could have a family, um, and they could have a really wonderful job, whether that be in industry or it be in academia. So encouraging women in engineering that it's a flexible job, whether you're at the undergraduate level or a master's or PhD. So I hope that answers the question. Absolutely, thanks so much. I'd, I'd love to hear more about some of the initiatives that, uh, that you launched. If I look at, you know, two key initiatives that I think um, I really think were important. Um, I've alluded to the Indigenous Futures in Engineering program, which started out as Aboriginal Access. I mean, something that's not particularly well known, but I actually have uh, Métis grandchildren and I have uh, families, uh, family members who are um, Métis as well. And so I, I do come from, I think, a perspective of wanting to make some change from a, a very personal um, perspective. Mm -hmm. But the, the opportunity there with Melanie Howard, who joined as director, was to really just to move that forward. And here I have to, you know, do a bit of a shout out um, in terms of the service award. For me, it hasn't really been, I need to accept it for a lot of people. If you look at the teams and groups of people that I've been associated with, whether it be faculty and staff in the, in the, the faculty of engineering and applied science, or if it happens to be um, the, uh, the, the vice principal's office, there were teams of people there that really did quite extraordinary things with some crazy ideas that I came up with. And, in, <laughs> and if you look at when we put Indigenous Futures and in Engineering into place, it was, it was an opportunity that was presented to me by uh, Corinne Jett, who was someone who had been a, was a, an Indigenous person who had been a faculty member at uh, Concordia. 
mm-hmm. and had an educational program. And it was, she didn't know what, where it was going to go and what was going to do when she left the university. So we reached out and we, we basically supported her transition of that material to Queens. And then we were fortunate enough to be able to hire um, Melanie. And uh, the rest, I think, is, is history. There's been a, a really great job. And we now graduate. We have about 45 students a year. And I think it's really important that there be Indigenous engineers um, who come from an understanding and background of the culture and the community. And I think that the, the program now is just really um, uh, moving forward and, and making that happen. And again, another one would be the uh, Dun and Desh Pandy program, which started off as a simple innovation program between the business school and engineering. Elspeth Murray and I of the business school just got together one day and say, why aren't we doing this? And we need she and I had both run startups and, and really, again, from a position of passion. And that's now taken off. It's a very big program and, and really um, has uh, put itself on the map over the last uh, five to 10 years. And I have to highlight, and I think it's really important, that both those programs were initiated um, through funding from the alumni. Um, and the alumni have been incredibly supportive of uh, many of these big initiatives, uh, particularly our engineering alumni with those two big initiatives. They simply would not have got off the ground mm-hmm. because at the time they were put in place, there was no funding for those kinds of initiatives. So um, that's. I think those are two of the big programs. Um, we did a lot of other uh, really wonderful things uh, in engineering. Again, I had a supportive community of department heads and faculty and staff. And then in the VPR's office, I would say one of the programs that I would be most proud of is the Wicked Ideas program, Mm -hmm. which actually helped researchers interact with other researchers and and helped Queens really compete at the national level in what's called uh, the Frontiers program. Um, through the granting agency. So that was a big one. It's a little bit different, again, done in a different way and pulled people together. And uh, I think it opened up some doors um, for researchers at Queen's. Amazing. Wow. Thank you for sharing. Now, uh, just uh, before we close, I'd like to hear from you, Kimberly, about uh, some advice you might have for students, especially female identifying students who may be thinking about careers in engineering and applied sciences? Uh, I think the advice is, is to uh, remember that you're, for the most part, colleagues are supportive mm-hmm. and, and that because engineering involves a lot of teams and teamwork, it's really hard to get through without being supportive. So, you know, take advantage of that, connect with your colleagues, don't try to do it all on your own. And I think the other advice is reach out simply reach out. I always like to remind students that professors don't actually bite. (laughs) We we actually uh, can be, uh, you know, helpful and supportive and and reach out, reach out to a colleague, reach out to a friend, reach out to the programming. There's new programs and initiatives, both within the faculty and across the university. Mm -hmm. Um, And and simply reach out. Uh, Don't try to handle it all on your own. There's someone who's probably gone through some of the stuff um, that you're going through. The workload is very high. 
uh, and, um, you know, don't get discouraged. And if you're in first year in particular, don't get discouraged by calculus and physics, you'll make it. Um, and, you know, other students are feeling the same way. So there's counseling support services, but there's also just your colleagues, just reach out and talk to them. Um, it's a pretty strong community. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, there's lots of supports in place. So that would be my advice. And, and uh, further advice, uh, do you have any for the, uh, for any Queens community members who may also be seeking to make a bigger impact on campus and beyond? I think for Queens community members who want to make it, it's, I think go with your passion. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't, you can't make an impact if you're not passionate about it. Um, and you can't because a lot of the initiatives and things that you might try to bring together, you know, for example, the Indigenous Futures and Engineering program didn't happen overnight and mm -hmm. didn't happen without barriers being put in place and didn't happen without constraints. But you have to be passionate about it. You have to care deeply about it. And if you do, then I think you can just you can just make things happen. Amazing. Thank you so much. Folks, we have been chatting with Dr. Kimberly Woodhouse all about her service to Queen's University. Congratulations, Kimberly, on earning a Distinguished Service Award, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. In our next segment, we're joined by Emeritus Chair Donald Raymond of the Queen's University Board of Trustees, Queen's alumnus and volunteer extraordinaire who remains committed to principles of collegial governance and who fostered strong relationships with student leaders, resulting in fundamental changes to responsible investment strategies, decarbonization, and climate action at Queen's University. Welcome to CFRC, Don, and a hearty congratulations to you on uh, receiving the Distinguished Service Award. Thank you very much, Dinah. So out there, our listeners would really love to learn more about you and your, and your very long connections with and service to Queen's University. I wonder if we can learn first about your time, even as a student at Queen's, and, and about your studies and extracurriculars, including your time, I understand, as president of the then Graduate Student Society, which is now known as the SGPS. Let's learn more about your time at Queen's. Okay. Well, I actually, <clears throat> I actually started my undergrad at RMC, if you can believe it, across the uh, across the bay. But I saw the light, as it were, and I, I crossed the bridge um, and did my third and fourth year uh, degree, undergraduate degree in engineering at Queen's, and then. Uh, after a brief, brief period working over in China, I came back to do my uh, my graduate studies, as you alluded to. So I was here from uh, 86 to 90 full time on campus doing my uh, started my master's and then got moved into the PhD program. Um, actually, I was a big brother while I was in uh, Kingston at that period. And I also uh, took on the role as uh, what at the time was called the Graduate Student Society Presidency, so GSS Presidency. And I believe it was our executive that brought together the law students and medical students uh, that subsequently became the SPGS. So that was one of our contributions. We also brought in the dental plan, which I believe still um, is in existence today. So that's what I remember anyway. So it was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but clearly, uh, back then, you were still had an interest service to the university uh, through your work uh, with the GSS, the Graduate Student Society. Uh, let's learn more about the journey uh, back after graduate studies. What brought you back to serve the institution and, and 
let's hear about some of the ways that you have done so. Mm. Yeah, so I just a bit out of the blue got a call from the um, from Barbara Polk, who at the time was the chair of the investment committee and on the board of trustees. Uh, she later became the chair of the board, but uh, she uh, called me in, I think it was the fall of 2008, just as the global financial crisis was uh, was kicking into high gear. <laughs> um, and I, at the time, was working uh, in the investment industry for the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. And obviously, as a Queen's alum, she reached out to me to see if uh, if there was interest in joining the board and, and uh, being on the investment committee, mm. um, and then subsequently the pension committee as well. So I said, okay, that sounds sounds interesting. And as, as, as you noted, I had a strong connection to Queen's and, and my student experience and student government. So I thought, well, that's, uh, that sounds like it should be uh, interesting and, and, uh, and fun, frankly. Um, and it's just a new, open a new window. And I've always had a higher interest in, in higher education, um, a strong interest in higher education. Um, I was teaching in the Masters of Finance program at the University of Toronto um, as well, um, just kind of for fun. <laughs> And in any event, uh, I joined the, the board and the investment committee and the pension committee in 2008. And then as, as the sequencing would have it, I became vice chair of the investment committee. I like to break it up into three, four-year chunks. I, was, I became vice chair of the investment committee in that first four years. And then when Barb became chair of the board, I moved into chair of the investment committee and vice chair of the board for the next four years. And then Barb uh, moved off the board and I became chair of the board. So it was kind of a natural sequencing. And during those years, uh, a lot of the financial issues were pretty uh, front and center for the university. Mm -hmm. Um, It had gone through a pretty difficult uh, period of time. Um, The pension plan was in a very unsustainable state and obviously had a very strong pension background having worked in in, in the pensions industry. Mm -hmm. It was clear what needed to be done. Um, it was a bit, little more difficult actually getting it done just because of the, uh, the challenges around governance with respect to the pension plan. If you want to go into more detail, I'd be happy to, but um, um, it took a long time and there are many proud parents, but the university pension plan emerged a couple of years ago and uh, really put uh, that pension plan on a long-term sustainable footing. So that was part of the journey. Yeah. Let's, let's hear a little bit more if we can, just to dig into the deeper history. Let's hear a little bit more about uh, what some of those financial challenges were and some of those structural issues with the pension plan and, and where things landed uh, at the end of your term as the chair of the board of trustees. Right. Right. I mean, I think it's been a, a it's been a historical challenge, not just for Queens, but for a lot of universities where obviously the you know, back when we were students, or even prior to my time as students, we used to say the universities were were government funded, um, and then they became what I would call more government assisted, and, and now I would describe them as more government controlled. Mm. <laughs> and the transition really is that if you look at the proportion of the budget of the university that comes from government, it's gone down and down and down, and yet they still put pretty. Uh, uh, big constraints on the university's ability to, for example, raise tuition. Um, that has placed a, a, an increasing emphasis on, on fundraising efforts, the role of the endowment. Uh, it provides a lot of student assistance, as you, as you probably know, mm-hmm. uh, those sorts of things. Uh, the pension plan, um, I would say structurally, just in the way that it was designed, uh, was very favorable to the employee <laughs> and very disadvantageous to the university, um, which really just had the effect of 
draining resources away from the university at the expense of, you know, potentially hiring younger new faculty, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from a governance point of view, it was almost impossible to change because faculty had a veto over the pension plan changes. And um, so that, that combined with tenure, with, you know, no mandatory retirement actually made a very, very unsustainable position, which um, I think the faculty ultimately realized that uh, it, was, it was putting, um, you know, the university's core mission at risk, frankly. And so getting that on a sustainable footing, raising the fundraising profile, we had one of the largest capital campaigns in the, uh, the university's history, um, very successful. Uh, really allowed uh, Principal Wolf at the time to launch a uh, uh, faculty renewal program. Mm-hmm. And they bring in some some fresh blood, <laughs> which was uh, which was terrific. So those were some of the structural challenges we faced. Okay, thank you so much. Appreciate that. And now let's learn more about some of the other initiatives in which you were engaged. Uh, perhaps even uh, the Queen's Backing Action on Climate Change Group, which sounds a little bit different than some of the work that you had otherwise been engaged in. Uh, actually, not, not really. Having, okay. been, uh, a se- having been part of the senior management for the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, which is a very high-profile organization within Canada, I think it's the largest institutional pool of capital in the country, now over $500 billion in assets, wow. um, and very transparent. Uh, we had been involved, and I personally had been quite involved in what we called sustainability or responsible investing issues for a long time. I actually was part of the, uh, I was actually the, the Canadian representative on the UN uh, group that developed the principles of responsible investing for the UN back mm-hmm. in 2005. And as part of my investing at CPPIB, I had been very much involved in climate related initiatives for a long time. And so Uh, My objective for Queen's was to pursue a path that enabled us to potentially have uh, impact, punch above our weight, and do more than than what I would consider symbolic things, which is what most other universities were doing. Um, Divestment, to me, is is not a a path where you're going to have any impact at all, frankly. You remove yourself from the conversation. And, And the path that we have chosen, which was discussed heavily with the students, that's the, the QBAC group in particular, um, was, was an interesting journey. I think that the students realized that our goal actually was, we actually had a sim- the same goal, <laughs> in fact. Um, the question was how, how best to get there. And mm-hmm. so um, we ultimately proposed a set of measures to the board. Uh, this was late in my tenure as board chair um, about what we were going to do with uh, not only on our campus carbon footprint, but also with respect to the endowment portfolio. Related to the bridge that the pension portfolio is no longer managed by Queens, because I say that moved off to the university pension plan. So we're really talking about endowment. And I rolled off as board chair in 2020, but I did stay on the investment committee, <laughs> which some would argue is probably not the best government governance practice to, to stay on. But I really wanted to um, see through some of those initiatives we'd committed to while I was still uh on the board. So I, I agreed to stay on the investment committee to see those through. And we are actively uh, following up on all of those commitments. Okay, wonderful. Now, um, I'd like to, I guess, learn a little bit more, dig a little deeper in what's ultimately driving your continued service. As, the, as a longtime member of the board of trustees, that's a volunteer position too. You're not, this is something you're doing in your spare time amidst your other career responsibilities. And, mm. and, and it sounds to me that a, a 
much of the work that you and your fellow trustees have been uh, or had been engaged in is extraordinary and huge uh, with huge implications. What What's really driving uh, your love of the university uh, to invest so much of your time and expertise in its continued uh, success? That's a great question. Um, it's, I would say that um, you can see just by this conversation that a lot of what I've done in my professional career intersects with some of the university, or at least it has over the last 10 or 15 years intersected with some of the, the uh, university's greatest needs. You know, my, my, my experience in investing in pensions specifically happened to coincide with, with a pretty big need of the university at the time. Interestingly, as I was passing the baton on to my successor, um, she is a president of a, of a hospital in, in Ottawa, just as the global financial crisis was, was kicking off. So, uh, so Mary's done a fabulous job in helping help steer the institution through the, uh, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But, um, it is a richly, I would say, one of the most rewarding things I have done, and, and in part, it's the people, um, just working with the senior leaders and the students, uh, as well, of course, with the the rest of the board and and uh, faculty and and staff. Um, it's a very complex institution, um, and so it's even more rewarding when you when you get things done and you actually feel like you're moving it forward. Um, if you read the history of Queens, it's it's a very long, proud, and and uh, a great it's a great history, and it's been through some difficult times. And and uh, the reason we do this is is because it is hard, and it does require people with specific expertise to help move the institution uh, forward. So it's been um, challenging, rewarding, and and fun, <laughs> frankly. Thank you so much for sharing. Well, and and we really do appreciate your time and and learning about uh, the uh, many many contributions that you have made to Queen's University and its overall financial health as well uh, while while here at the university with the board of trustees and some of the other initiatives that you've engaged on in. Dawn, thank you very much for joining us today and, and a huge and hearty congratulations on earning this Distinguished Service Award from Queen's University. Thank you, Diana. It's been great to, great to speak to you. Coming up in our next segment, we're chatting with Dr. Leslie Flynn, Vice Dean Education of the Faculty of Health Sciences here at Queen's University, also a Queen's alumna, professor, exceptional educator, researcher, mentor, and leader of the pursuit, improvement, and championing of education at all levels, and who is dedicated to the fundamental transformation of medical education and whose accomplishments and legacy will impact students, faculty, and staff for years to come. And welcome back. In this segment, we are joined by Dr. Leslie Flynn of the Departments of Family Medicine and Psychiatry and present Vice Dean Education of the Faculty of Health Sciences and also a recipient of a Queen's University Distinguished Service Award. Welcome, Leslie, and, and congratulations on receiving this award. Thank, thank you so much, Dinah. I, you cannot imagine, or maybe you can, what an honor it is to be a recipient of this distinguished award. Wow. So now I understand, Leslie, uh, not only have you had a, a very long career trajectory and, and, and many years of co- various contributions to the, to the university that we'll discuss forthwith, 
But I also understand that uh, you're also a Queen's alumna um, across several different disciplines. Uh, I, I think that you started uh, as a student uh, in arts and science doing a degree in music, and, th and then you moved on to uh, a master's degree in education, but you also did uh, medicine and with residencies, I understand, in, in family medicine and psychiatry. Wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so talk about your time at Queen's as an actual student and and what what were you thinking what were your plans where were you going when oh, when you were still a student I think that trajectory probably tells you I had no plan um <laughs> but I would identify myself um with some humility I would think as a lifelong learner and that's probably what I brought to my profession as an educator at Queen's as well, really promoting the idea of the, uh, the idea that we, if we're curious enough, we never stop learning mm -hmm. and, and how that enriches our lives in so many ways. Um, so you're absolutely right. I came to Queen's as a young, young person um, and came to the Bachelor of Music at Queen's in the Faculty of Arts and Science and had an incredible experience. It was a personal, caring um, environment that really promoted growth and development of all of the students, um, created a, an incredible community that allowed us, I think, to flourish. So that was my first experience. And at that point in time, I thought that I probably would have a career in music. I went away and did graduate work at two different uh, institutions, uh, other higher <laughs> institutions of higher education, but found myself coming back to Kingston and Queens um, and really recognized that music, as much as it was part of my life, and I really thoroughly enjoyed music. It wasn't a good career fit for me. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking around and thought about, well, if I'm not doing this, what would I do? And I really explored with the benefit of some people, some career development people at Queens, um, what were the options? And I thought about many different uh, professions that I might pursue um, and ended up selecting medicine and came to medicine and graduated from medicine next at in 1987. Mm -hmm. I pursued a degree um, family medicine first and um, that was largely because of life circumstances at the at that point. Um, I wanted to get out and practice and I had been a mature student in medicine, not not as young as my peers mm -hmm. um, and so again, traveled and practiced in the U.S. for a little bit and then returned to Kingston and Queen's University. And that's when I returned to training and did psychiatry. I had really thoroughly enjoyed family medicine, but within that practice, really recognized that mental health was a prominent presenting problem that patients brought. And I didn't feel well enough skilled for one thing, but also recognized there was a whole world to learn about. And so then I did psychiatry. Good golly, how many degrees do you have? <laughs> oh, I actually, I do have a few. I, <laughs> I have a degree from the University of Toronto as well. That was a master's of music. And that was really when I recognized, although I love music, it wasn't really a career path for me. 
<laughs> oh boy. Okay. So, wow. This is what a, what an amazing story. Thank you for sharing so much. I, I'd love to dig a little bit more into your career path, uh, following your, your time in residency and as a, uh, and as a clinician, uh, in both family medicine and psychiatry to one where you've fostered many new initiatives broadly, quite broadly as an administrator in the areas of physician wellness, as well as uh, educating our physicians. I, I'd like to hear more about that journey and, and where uh, you went from practice to developing uh, curricula and ensuring physician wellness too. Oh, that's a that's a great question, and I could take multiple different tacks in terms of trying to address it. Um, I'm going to repeat myself and say it would be lovely to imagine there was a well honed plan, <laughs> um, but not necessarily. Um, let let me talk about when I first then started when I got an academic position in the School of Medicine in the Faculty of Health Sciences um, as a psychiatrist. Quite clearly at Queen's, all of the physicians, um, all of the physicians who are practicing clinically also have an appointment at Queen's. And with that comes a responsibility to contribute to teaching the next generation of healthcare professionals. So I automatically became involved in education. Um, this is where I think my my personal background, both of my parents were teachers. Uh, a number of my siblings are teachers and education has always been very important to me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I started pursuing not only teaching, but taking responsibility for thinking about, well, how does one best teach the next generation of healthcare professionals. And we don't necessarily want to teach in the way that we were taught because there's an evolution in terms of all kinds of every discipline. And uh, we were really moving away from an apprenticeship type of model in medicine to really thinking about the learner as a learner and helping them on their growth and development as a learner. So I became more and more involved in education and took on some roles. Mm -hmm. I was a program director in our department of psychiatry for a number of years, leading our residency education program. I subsequently became the director of the psychotherapy program, which is a, an area of specific interest specialty within the practice of psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And as I became more and more involved in education, opportunities presented themselves, different um, opportunities. Uh, and, and actually, that is how I became involved in physician wellness. As people recognized that I was interested in the learners and their state of well-being, um, I became sort of a referral source, or the recipient of referrals of learners who were having some difficulty um, and started to deliver care because physicians are not um, protected from all of the potential ailments that any person in the public could have. Mm -hmm. um, and so I became very involved in providing care to resident physicians and subsequently practicing physicians um, who were in distress of some nature. Mm -hmm. So that is how I became very involved in the 
this sort of subspecialty of psychiatry, which is providing care to physicians. And certainly over the last few years with the uh, pandemic, there has been a surge in need for delivering care to physicians, frontline physicians who have experienced incredible stress and distress. Okay. And, and and moving on and expanding upon rather uh, your uh, concerns and, and investment in physician wellness and programming uh, to support that, um, I'd like to hear more too about uh, some of the work that you've done in creating professional development opportunities, uh, including a whole scholarship in professional de- development and education for the Faculty of Health Sciences. Uh, let's hear more about that. Okay. So that office is something... I am very proud of. Uh, When I became the Vice Dean of Education, um, what I recognized, and and certainly didn't do this alone, all of the work I've done is with many collaborators, um, but really recognized we had many offices. One is our Office of Continuing Professional Development. We had an Office of Faculty Development. We had an Office of Educational Scholarship. We, We had all of these multiple offices that were involved in providing different aspects of education for our faculty members and our staff members. Um, And they were all thwarted, I would say, by the limited resources they had. For instance, our faculty development office, just to use as an example, had a 0.5 FTE administrative assistant with a point to leader in that role um, as as an associate dean of faculty development. And so all of these offices that we're trying to contribute to improving the ongoing professional development and education for um, our faculty members, they they were really struggling with the inability to use, put their ideas into practice basically. So so with a lot of help and cooperation and collaboration, I was able to bring these offices together into one unit of professional development and educational scholarship and take the limited resources we had and put them together to support the initiatives. And we have absolutely flourished with this new model of one unit there are different streams within this unit. They all have different responsibilities, but we've used the resources to our benefit. Mm-hmm. Subsequently, have actually been able to grow quite substantially because these people are able to work together and really flourish. Thank you for sharing. And now, uh, before we close, uh, I I wonder if you have any words of advice for students uh, who might be thinking about careers in in medicine, but also careers in educating current and future physicians. So, so I would oh that whole concept of curiosity um, to never never lose what you have as a young person as you're in making inquiry and eager to learn. If you can maintain that curiosity, there are so many paths that will open up to you. Um, and I would say the the last degree that I did, which was in the Faculty of Education, which was a tremendously valuable decision that I made 
and has proved proven so beneficial. So that instead of, as I've said earlier, instead of just teaching as I was taught, really un- getting to understand the theoretical underpinning of how we teach and how we learn um, has allowed so many so many developments to come forward. So lifelong learning, maintaining your curiosity and your enthusiasm about uh, the privilege that we have in our professions. Thank you so much. And now do you have any advice for Queen's community members who may be seeking to make a bigger impact that benefits the whole community? You know, I would, (laughs) so I am uh, probably a good example of Um, although I could do it a lot better and do it a lot more, so I'm not finished, is the ability to to work within your faculty, but also reach out to the experts across the university. Mm -hmm. Um, I have been so privileged and benefited so greatly by working with colleagues in the Faculty of Education, in um, arts and science, in engineering, that opportunity to collaborate and benefit from the expertise that is across the university is um, is the advice I would give people. Don't stay so sequestered in your own little department or faculty, um, but reach out to the experts across the university. Thank you so much, folks. We've been chatting with Leslie all about uh, her distinguished career at Queen's University in uh, family medicine and 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 psychiatry and and her work in the Faculty of Health Sciences as an educator for our physicians as well. Thank you so much for joining us and chatting with us about your Distinguished Service Award. And once again, huge congratulations. Sincere thanks to you for giving me this opportunity. And in our next and final segment, we're joined by Dan Langham, Director of Environmental Health and Safety at Queen's University since 1999, a trusted advisor, developer of policies, programs, and services to promote a healthy workplace, a champion of health and safety on campus, and who was instrumental in the university's response to the global pandemic while providing steadfast guidance and leadership in navigating the complexities of safety during an unprecedented time. Dan, welcome to CFRC today. How are you? I'm great, and uh, thanks for having me this afternoon. Uh, Really appreciate your time. So, Dan, uh, you are in charge of all things health and safety at Queen's University. What drew you into a career in environmental health and safety? And, and, And can you explain for our listeners perhaps what environmental health and safety is at Queen's University? Sure. Yeah. Um, it, it was an interesting journey, I think, to environmental health and safety for me because um, my initial education and training was actually in geomorphology. Hmm. And so my early career was focused uh, very specifically on environmental inspection of all things in the oil and gas industry. Um, but, you know, I learned pretty early on and, and through some discussions with uh, a few mentors of mine that. Uh, in industry, particularly, environmental health and safety was often managed under a very similar or common program and umbrella. And so I 
I thought to myself that really, I think if I wanted to to branch out, one of the things that I needed to do was to expand and and increase my knowledge and expertise in the area of health and safety, so that I was, you know, better positioned to to take on the environmental health and safety world. And so uh, I did do that, and and uh, ended up working. Uh, continuing to work in the oil and gas industry and in, in the environmental health and safety world. And, and um, um, it was through uh, really just looking around uh, after spending some time overseas working, working in this field, uh, I came back to Canada and I was, I was looking for, for maybe a bit of a change that uh, I saw the opportunity at Queens university and, uh, and they were looking for an, an environmental health and safety officer. And I thought, well, that now fits with my sort of new expanded direction in terms of my career. And, and I thought that that might be an interesting opportunity. And I remember sitting thinking to myself, you know, hmm, my university, I wonder, I wonder what that's going to be like. And, and doing some research, it, it became clear that universities had a whole bunch of health and safety issues and, and risk, but um, you know, it was it was something that I think was going to be a challenging world because there was uh, a lot of different things that people were were involved in, and um, you know, they were research itself was expanding the boundaries with respect to knowledge, and so you know, thinking about how do we do that and and keeping a health and safety perspective in mind was really something that um, interested me. So I did apply for the job and, and was lucky to get it. Um, and so I, I came to to Kingston um, and, uh, you know, had an opportunity to work a while in that position, eventually became the operations manager in the department and that led to, to being the director. And so, so, you know, really it was, you know, through some, some uh, discussions and interventions through, through some mentorships that, that steered me in a different direction and, and really brought me to where I am today. So um, that's how I managed to get into the health and safety world. Thank you so much. And and yes, can we hear a little bit more about what environmental health and safety is and what it means in practice on the, the day-to-day at Queen's University? Yeah, sure. I, I think the best way to think about it from a university perspective is that um, environmental health and safety uh, here at Queen's is is in the department that I, I lead is is really sort of the corporate health and safety department for for the institution. In large part, that's because it it uh, you know the institution itself is is quite a decentralized environment, and you can think of of the faculties and departments as as little organizations under a big umbrella. And so, the thing that we do is is to provide. Um, guidance and expertise uh, and and information to all our different um, faculties and departments on how to um, continue to pursue academics and how to continue pr- to pursue research, but doing it uh, in a healthy and safe manner mm-hmm. and, and ensuring that those that are involved in the day-to-day operations, whether it be administrative staff within a department, um, through to research staff within a lab area, uh, and then, you know, in the departments that are the support services for the institution as a whole, that they're able to come here and execute their work uh, and execute the tasks that, that they're here to do and, you know, to learn and get a degree in a healthy and safe manner. Um, and so really that's what environmental health and safety is about, is layering over top of our operations 
that mindset of safety um, and ensuring that anything we do and everything we do can be done safely so that, you know, we're not, we're not looking at a situation where, where somebody's being injured uh, in the course of, of doing what it is they do here at the institution. And so we provide that central direction um, that then departments and, and labs in various areas can work under. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And now, can you talk a little, uh, Can you talk more with us, Dan, about some of the initiatives that you've spearheaded over your many years of service at Queens? Sure. I mean, I think one of the big things I would say that I'm proud of uh, working here at the university is is being able to build. Uh, a strong team, um, because I think that's important. I mean, my success in my role is very much dependent on the team that I build. And so one of the things from an accomplishment standpoint that I think is, you know, been both beneficial to me, but in to the institution as a whole is, is building that strong team. And, and some of my team members um, have been with me from the start. And so, you know, creating um, that team that provides support to the institution on a daily basis is something that I'm I'm really proud of, and and I think you know as much as uh, this award uh, acknowledges the work that I've done, I think it also acknowledges the work that they do and and continue to do, and I, I'm really happy to have such a great team that supports me on a day to day basis. So so that's one thing I think I look back on and 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 can can you know be proud of. Um, I think, too, you know, we've created a number of different programs over the years from a health and safety standpoint. And um, I think one of the things that that, again, I'm, I'm proud of is the, is the fact that we've been able to build um, programs that have been supportive to our academic and research mission and not be an impediment to it. And, and this is something I think we've strived to, to do from day one is is to be that, you know, in that consultation role, to be a department that people will actually come to and talk to because they know they're going to get support rather than a no or something along those lines. And and I, I was struck by a conversation that I've had, you know, a number of times, but uh, uh, there was a particular time where I was speaking to a technician within a department who was in the process of developing a new lab area. And he relayed to me a, a time when he had gone off with some colleagues to look at uh, a similar uh, a similar research area within another university. And, and in conversation, uh, it came up that, uh, you know, they would go back and talk to their environmental health and safety group uh, about implementation. And, and the person from the other university said, well, why would you do that? And he said, well, because, you know, they're they're here to help and support us. And, and the person said to them, well, we don't do that here because they just tend to get in our way. And, and that struck me because it told me that we had created the right environment where departments were not afraid to come and talk to health and safety because they knew that we were here to help and to facilitate and, and not to be that roadblock. And I think, you know, the programs that we've created have, have hit that um, balance. And, and that's something that definitely I... I, I think has been significant. A little bit more granular, I think, you know, we we implemented a, a campus-wide chemical inventory project uh, a number of years ago, which was, um, you know, revolutionary at the time in the sense that, you know, departments had various ways of of logging chemicals and 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 keeping track of them. And, and we came uh, with a partnership uh, amongst a couple of other universities in Ontario to say we can do this in a centralized, consistent, and cohesive way, and and we worked very hard to implement that, and and it's you know paid some dividends in the sense that we've been able to very quickly tell what kind of chemical we we have 
uh, we've been able to respond to government inquiries around what kind of chemicals that we have in a very quick and efficient manner that really took the burden off of the research community, which is something, again, we've always strived to do. And so that um, was a program I think that I, you know, think back on with with some uh, pride in terms of getting that implemented. Um, I think recently, too, the work we've done in in off campus um, activity safety has has been something that um, you know recently has paid some dividends. Uh, when you think of the pandemic, um, part of one of the first things that really happened uh, when the pandemic hit was how do we you know keep track of how do we repatriate all the individuals that we had uh, off you know at all corners of the globe um, you know back to Canada or or to their home wherever it may be and so the the off-campus activity policy and 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 the database that we have and implemented that that tracks where where people are in terms of um, their research or their study location um, was something that allowed us to very quickly make contact with individuals, find out what kind of support they needed, mm-hmm. support them in returning home. And so that's another program I think that, you know, recently showed um, the importance of health and safety uh, and risk management, but uh, was something that we implemented and, and helped the institution repatriate people that that needed support in doing so. So those are a few of the things that I look back on. Right. Uh, I'm sure there I'm sure there's many more, but those are the ones that sort of jump to mind as I sit here today. But gosh, that it sounds uh, like some of those tasks were just a full team effort, a lot of people invested from uh, all over the place to make that kind of work uh, happen. I I would assume that uh, trying to uh, do inventory for every single department that even has a chemical <laughs> somewhere in there must have been uh, quite the gargantuan task, especially knowing that uh, each department would have its own particular systems of tracking things. But then the almost it feels like an almost insurmountable task of being able to uh, do the outreach and, and make sure that uh, folks that are um, doing their researcher studies uh, near or far, but certainly away from campus, uh, like you would have been dealing with thousands of people, I imagine, at that point. Definitely, yeah. There was there was a lot of people that we were we were making contact with and tracking. And I think, you know, it it's true when when you say a lot of times when you sit down and think about you know implementation of program and, and how do we improve health and safety, you can be left with that feeling of it's a gargantuan task and and it's one that's going to be challenging just because of the the diversity and, and the multifaceted environment in which we work in. But I think one of the things that is important and one of the things I think we've been able to do with the institution is to show benefit um, mm-hmm. to departments and to individuals and you know really say there's benefit to you in this and here's where that benefit lies um, so that it's not just simply an exercise of you got to do it because we say so. Um, and I think you know part of what makes us um, successful in what we do is is to is to show that value add um, to show that investment in health and safety has benefit um, and it's not just simply you know the check to say we're in compliance you know and we move on I think we we really do try to work with departments and talk with departments about how do you integrate this within your day-to-day operation so that it has benefit and isn't simply something that we do because we have to and and I think the institution has embraced that you know mm-hmm. I've 
I think back to when I first started at the university and and to where we are now, and and definitely there's been an evolution over time of of people's thinking with respect to health and safety and and an understanding of the importance of it. And we have seen a greater implementation uh, of health and safety into the day-to-day operations of the institution. And and that's rewarding to see because I, you know, I I, I like to say that our team has played a part in in changing that thinking and 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 having the institution move over time um, you know, towards a place that you know does very much think about and support health and safety of its of its uh, community members. Okay, thank you very much, Dan. And now, have you any advice for uh, other members of the Queen's community who might be interested in giving back in their own ways, including thinking about uh, the health and safety within their own unit? Yeah, I, I think it's important for people to realize that everybody plays a part. Um, and I, I think that that's, you know, something that that people can can think about more is, is how do I play my part? Um, and and oftentimes people think, well, you know, my my sphere of, of influence is limited. And so, you know, how much of an impact can I possibly have? And and I and we we like to tell people that, you know, no amount of, of work in health and safety is too small. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even influencing within your particular area. And so even if you're a student within a lab you know, talking to people about health and safety and keeping health and safety in people's minds is is important, and it and it helps people keep that front and center within their their day to day work and 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 job. And one of the things we're we're always battling is this this notion of complacency, where you know it can't happen to me, or 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 you know what I'm doing is is not of significance, and therefore I'm going to worry less about it. You know and we we often tell people that accidents can happen everywhere in any time. And so, you know, even if you're the only person working away in the lab, thinking about health and safety, working in a health and safety manner will impact you. It'll it'll have an impact on you and it'll have an impact on others if you're working in a in a shared space or amongst your colleagues. And so always look for those opportunities to talk about health and safety and 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 really, you know, integrate it into the the work that you're doing, uh, because again, no action in a health and safety world is too small. And so, people need to keep that in mind. And and you know, as people move through their career, I think it's about understanding how your role changes as you move through your career. And so, as you move from an undergraduate to a graduate student, you know, there's there's a, a role you play in that. And then if you go on. Uh, further into academia and become a, a you know an instructor or a, a principal investigator, you're now in a in a realm in which you supervise others and definitely can influence their thinking and their actions with respect to health and safety. And so, I, I think really you know the biggest piece of advice I would have to people is to think about those opportunities to integrate it into the stuff that you do on a day to day basis, um, and and make it second nature to the work that you do. And and everybody is going to be better off because of that. Well, thank you very much. That's very sage advice. And and thank you, Dan, for joining us today to uh, discuss your many years of service in environmental health and safety here at Queen's University. And, and from all of us at CFRC, a hearty congratulations upon winning the Distinguished Service Award this year. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And uh, again, appreciate uh, having some time to talk to you about it. 
Thank you for tuning into our special Campus Beat featuring conversations with Queen's University Distinguished Service Award winners. Learn more about these awards on the Queen's University Secretariat website via queensu.ca. Thank you so much for listening and for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM, broadcasting from Queen's University since 1922. Until next time, I'm Dinah Jansen. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.